I'm JD. And I'm Fraser. And welcome to another 150 Marchers at the Bar, where tonight we're delighted to be joined by activist and campaigner Mark Thompson. In a career as an activist and programme manager working in HIV prevention and sexual health that spans over 25 years, Mark has been at the forefront of major changes in the treatment of HIV and AIDS. In 2015, he became one of the founders of PrEPster, an organization that pushed for the life-changing medication PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, which dramatically reduces the chance of spreading HIV. After years of campaigning by Thompson and others, PrEP was made freely available in England in April 2020. Tell us about your journey into activism and what led you to founding PrEPster and Blackout UK. I got involved in uh, HIV prevention support work around 1989, a couple of years after my own diagnosis, because I was diagnosed in 1986. And then, as you mentioned, Blackliners, I kind of expressed an interest in volunteering for them in around 88, 89, when they first started, but took a back seat. and didn't really kind of get involved with them too heavily, apart from as a service user myself. But in 92, I became involved in a small group of black gay men called Let's Rap. And what we were doing every weekend was running uh, workshops and safer sex education for black gay men in London, partnering up with a few organisations around the country. We primarily did that because the main organisations like Terence Higgins Trust at the time, slowly emerging GMFA, were not addressing the needs of black gay men, either around prevention or for those of, the, those of us who were living with HIV. So we set up to do something which was culturally appropriate and specific to our community and our needs. So I did that for about a year. Um, we ran those workshops and they were funded locally by a local authority. They worked really, really well. And in 94, I was recruited to set up an organisation called Big Up. So that was the first organisation formally set up and established to work for black gay men in this country. We were funded to work in Lambeth, Southwark and Lewisham, but our reach was much bigger than that. We had a lot of influence across the country. And again, we set that up for exactly the same reasons why we did Let's Rap. So that's, that. I mean, that was my start in, in the game. Um, and I was involved in Big Up for about three years, um, doing a lot of community development, health promotion work, um, recruiting and training the first team of volunteers, trying to just make sure that the issues and needs of black gay men were in the room around prevention, but also creating resources, information that was for us. Um, so it was completely relatable. So I did that for a few years took some time out to work in generic health promotion, became less of an activist and more of a civil servant because it was really good for my career to build that up. And in 2004, left all of that and got back into health promotion by working at the Terence Higgins Trust. And I worked there for eight years, um, worked my way up to head of health promotion and just kind of moved around the HIV sector for a while doing various bits and pieces. 2012, um, started to work for Positively UK and set up the National Peer Mentor Program. So I was basically going out training and recruiting positive people to take charge of their own lives and provide one-to-one -one group peer support around the country. I mean, I had a team and we trained about 700 people around England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That's kind of soft activism. Um, it wasn't on the front lines, but it was certainly trying to make sure that individuals who are living with HIV were empowered enough to look after themselves, but also 
because of who I am and I'm quite loud and a rabble rouser, that my training also wasn't about, well, just be nice to yourself. It was also, you know, fight for your voices and advocate for others as, as, as well as doing kind of generic peer support. So we flash forward to 2015 and Will Nutland and I, who have worked together on and off since around 96, 97, we start having conversations around gay men's health. Well, actually, we started to have conversations about gay men's health promotion in around 2012 because we felt that it was lacking. We felt that it was getting really tired, wasn't sexy, wasn't coming from us. Everything could become really, really generic. And we kind of sat on that for a while. And in 2015, we recognised that there was a lot of chatter going on online about PrEP, accessing information. And we were being approached, well, Will was being approached by clinicians in HIV clinics going, we're getting gay men coming and ask us about PrEP. We have no information. We can't prescribe it. We don't know. We can't tell them what to do. So Will called me, a guy called Charlie Ritzel and Richie Kawangi to come together around his table and we started mapping out Prepster. And our idea was that we would set up a little website, it would last for six months, it would provide basic information around accessing PrEP. So what to do to buy it safely, what it was. And then we also, because we were activists, thought that we should also start agitating for PrEP. So as well as providing information for gay men, we were putting information out for all of the community, be that all stakeholders, users, right through to clinicians, right through to commissioners. We gave them tools to start pushing a government to get PrEP access available in the UK. So that was the beginning of PrEP Start. So as I said, it was only meant to last six months. Five years later, we're still here. I also, in 2016, we got together with a couple of friends and we decided to set up Blackout UK because we recognised that there was this proliferation of online spaces for black gay men, but none of them were from the UK. All of them were in the US. And so we wanted to do something. We spoke to the black male voice in the UK. And so we set up Blackout. Again, that was only meant to be a digital space. There was no time limit on it, but we just wanted to create content, stories, what we then described as evidence of our existence. Kind of addressing issues around representation and truth, um, but we were very clear that we were writing for us and by us. This wasn't about appealing to the white gaze. We weren't here to tackle sexual racism, any of those things. It was about building up black men to be the best that we can be. That then evolved from an online digital space to real world activity so creating groups for younger men spaces for older men to, to meet and get together film screenings talks panels you name it we did it so my career has been a mixture of paid work and my specialism is health promotion around hiv sexual health and race but my activism has been around hiv advocacy black men prep access and treatment information and advice do you think we're in a new silence when it comes to hiv we moved away from HIV affects everybody, right? And that used to be the conversation. And we know now that it's hits specific communities. If it could tailor itself, it is tailoring itself to meet an impact on certain communities. But it always has done. And I think that the silence comes because those communities are silenced anyway. They are invisible anyway. So I think there's that. I also think that we have moved into an age where HIV is less visible physically. So people do not get sick and they do not die. And so we live and we live well. And because of so much stigma attached to HIV, so many people aren't coming out, aren't having those conversations anymore. There was a, a study a few years ago about gay men, this was many years ago, younger gay men saying, there's no need for me to tell anybody, I'm on treatment, I'm healthy, why do I need to disclose? So I think that in our communities, 
there's less conversation because we're managing it, we're living well, and that conversation has shifted to prep and prevention. So there's not complete silence. I think the voices of people who are aging with HIV are not heard. I think that it's not in the news anymore unless a big celebrity comes out about their HIV, then it's hot news for a few weeks and it goes away. But I think certainly I'm in the HIV bubble, so I hear it all of the time. Does it need to be in the media and, and, and loudly? Yes, but I think it needs to be a new conversation. What is that new conversation? It's still about fighting for access to treatment for everybody. It's not just about ending HIV stigma. It's also about understanding why people continue to be infected or those people that do are infected are marginalized, are poor, come from black and brown communities. You know, so all of these things. And so I think the impact of HIV needs to be discussed and the reasons why people might still continue to get HIV need to be discussed. So if we look at the significant drop in HIV numbers over the past few years, we celebrate that news and that's amazing news. But what we're not talking about is the fact that there are some parts of communities where that is not happening. Mm. So we see it dropping gay men, but in Latino men, men whose first language isn't English, it's still rising or it's not dropping at the same rate. So those conversations need to continue. What are the biggest obstacles you've faced? And my, my immediate answer is the gays. <laughs> every, every, every homosexual. You know, the barriers that were there at the beginning continue to be the barriers today, right? So there's a big societal barriers that we live in a still relatively prudish country that has an immature attitude towards sex and sexuality. So we don't have those free conversations. Our conversations and our work is always reactive, not proactive about sex. So we should be talking to people about a phrase that we use in health promotion called about having the best sex with the least harm. And what we're doing is doing something in reverse. Oh my God, you've caused harm to yourself. How do we fix it? We're all having sex, right? So why do we make it pleasurable? Because the risks that are attached to it. So yeah, so I think, you know, we've got societal barriers. We have funding and government still continue to put blocks there to do really innovative and creative work which is based in community so that needs to shift and we've certainly seen a shift because of because of funding cuts there is a lot less money to do the work that is needed as well but there is also sometimes there is the community which is a barrier right which is about the, the community taking the messages on board engaging with the work gay men black communities we still stigmatize that still happens. So we need to address those issues. As an activist, right, you want everybody to be on board the same hymn sheet as you and on the same journey, especially the people that you are fighting for. You want them to be on board. And that has always been the big struggle for me is what I, what I and I'll own it, sometimes perceive as the apathy of the communities that I serve. And you know, you want people to be as angry or as fired up or as motivated as you, or if not those three things, then certainly grateful, thankful, acknowledging what you've done, you know, acknowledging that you've just sat in a four hour meeting with a bunch of white commissioners fighting for them. And you go and it's like, well, yeah, so. So there's, that has always been there. You know, it, it's, a, it's a lonely life in some ways, right? Um, so that has always been, a, and it's a personal thing, the acknowledgement from the wider community and also a bigger engagement. So I know that back in the 80s and the 90s, it was really easy to get people to come forward and volunteer and be activists and want to be advocates because we were in a time of crisis. 
we, we, you had to do something. When I flash forward to 2016, 2017, when I'm trying, for example, to get more black queer men engaged in the prep conversation, it's a real struggle. And I think that has a lot to do with the fragmentation of life. So people are all over the place, social media, you know, I think it has a lot to do with we are now working much more as individuals rather than the collective. So everybody's got their own brand. Everybody's going to, you know, everybody's an activist. Everybody's a social media star. Rather than coming together and going, actually, if five of us social media influencers got together as one brand, we can make a huge bit of difference. How have you seen your work make an impact? The big stuff, so, you know, like access to PrEP that we've been working on for a few years, we have seen the results of that, right? So, you know, the government is now funding it. It will be rolled out eventually. So, yeah, that is a success. On a, on a more micro level, if I think about my work with other positive people or with black gay men, so my work around black gay men is around empowerment, is around finding voices. So I have seen in the past five or six years younger gay men who were worried, frightened, unsure have come to the fore and have blossomed and have developed and have grown and created their own stuff as a result of the work that I've been involved in. I know when I did Big Up 20 years ago, there were people who were my first ever volunteers and now leading global projects or interventions. When they walked in the door, you know, 25 years ago in their mid-20s, they were literally just coming out of the closet. So I know that my activism has had an impact on individuals like that, which then means they've had an impact on the wider community. What do you think makes a good ally? Allies are always always necessary in any in any fight, right? In any, in any battle, you need people on your side, one way or the other. And I'm always welcome that. I welcome allies in the three different areas that I might work in: you know, HIV, race, or sexuality. But I need those people to be meeting me at the place where I'm starting at and where I'm working and considering my needs. So I'll give you an example. If something happens in Uganda around the arrest of queer men at a party, the immediate response from a UK activist might be to go online and, you know, these police are terrible and we need to blah, 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 blah. What we tend to do, and I'm talking about me and Will and the activists I work with, is to reach out to those folk in Uganda and say, what is it you need? from me what can I do for you do you want me to back off right I don't come in with my size nines and start determining this is what it is and this is the direction that it should be because I have a certain amount of privilege and I sit in a certain place here and I kind of want allies that I work with to do the same there's also the conversation about listening and making sure people feel that they're being heard and being an ally is also really difficult because you need to check your own shit. So I try to really work when I'm, I used to do a lot of work with positive women. And as a man that's raised in a sexist society, in a patriarchal one, I constantly have to check myself. But I went into that space asking women, what is it that I should be doing? And if I wasn't needed as an ally, step away. That's also allyship is knowing when to step back because it's not, it's not for you. It's not for you. But it's about being brave, listening, making sure people are heard and giving them what they need. I mean, I, I think everybody has their place on this activism journey or doing stuff. And we all have the potential to be activists and to be allies. And there's some of us, that are, I mean, I don't, I don't go on marches and demos. It's not my thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't really enjoy them, right? But I can sit at home and I can do lots of other things for people that are going on those marches. So when Black Lives Matter marches happened, I didn't go because of COVID, looking after my family. But I knew lots of my younger, I call them my younger brothers and nephews, were marching. And they would call me and say, what do I do? This is my first demo. What do I do? And so I was able to give them advice and information about how to manage that. What you do if you get stopped by the police? Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. And then having a debrief with them after. 
so they feel okay and they feel safe and they'll feel secure. So, so my activism has shifted over the years and I've become much more of a, an elder for some of the younger activists that are coming through because I don't have the energy to be marching up and down. Well, I do, but I don't want to. What do you do to take care of yourself? I think the first thing, I mean, in my rule book um, of kind of self-care slash activism is knowing when to say no. It's really important to say, no, this isn't, I, I can't do this. And it's okay to say no. You're not a bad person, right? Um, and you haven't, like, you know, joined the dark side because <laughs> you said no that time. So saying no on a personal level, you know, I I practice yoga, I swim, I've got him, my dog, so I spend a lot of time with him, and I've cut a lot of crap out of my life. So my work now is work that I love to do with people that I love to do it with. So that's really really important for me. So saying no, yoga, lots of rests, and just picking my battles, I think, is really important. What would you say to your teenage self? Well, as a young gay man, I'd say to him, you know, you're going to be all right. You know, don't sit here and worry in life. Life's going to be fine. And I'd say to him, get ready because you've got a fight on your hands. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun, but you're going to have a fight on your hands. What do you think of our pursuit for the 150 marchers? I mean, I think it's a great idea and much needed. And I, you know, congratulate you on pursuing it. I think it's really important that we are gathering this information from our elders that lay the foundations for where we are today. That history is, is being forgotten, like you would, like I'm sure you know. And the vast majority of younger people don't know pre-2004. And that is really, really worrying for me. I think it's really important because I know that that march has roots in the black civil rights movement in the US. So I'm really keen to see how that story is drawn out and those connections are made. And those people are our heroes. You know, I, I, we genuinely wouldn't have the stuff that we have today without them putting their lives and their bodies on the line at a time when homosexuality had literally just been decriminalized. They were really young as well. So I just think it's a great thing you're doing. Um, I'm really pleased that you're doing this because history is so, so important for our community. And we lost a generation. We lost a generation whose, whose stories will just not be told and not be heard. And this is why I think that stuff like this is just essential for our community. What is it about you that makes you an activist? I mean, I think I would have been a loudmouth about anything. Do you know what I mean? I would have been a rabble rouser in any kind of space that I was in because I always was, you know, um, and I don't like injustice. Also, my parents weren't activists or weren't necessarily political, but they certainly didn't want, didn't like unfairness and push back about it. So I was raised in a household where that was accepted or, or, or understood. As I said, you know, activism, activism is on a sliding scale, but I do think that one needs to be passionate and have empathy for people that may not be the same as them or have an understanding of different lives and conditions. I believe in being a smart activist. And by that, I mean not shutting down relationships with people who might be in opposition to me. I'm not a great believer in turn the other cheek. I'm, not Mar- I'm, more Mar- I'm more Malcolm X than I am Martin Luther King, I can tell you that. I'm a little bit more Marcus Garvey than I am the two of them. So I'm quite radical, but I also know when to shut up and listen to somebody that might be different to me to bring them along on the journey. I mean, obviously, you know, there are certain people or bodies that I'm not going to engage in conversations with. So I'm not going to sit down and talk to the Daily Mail and get to change their headlines, which are racist, homophobic. Fuck that. But if I see there's a little chink of light, then absolutely I will, I will engage in it. Because, for example, if I take around the issue around race right now, I am Rene Ede Lodge. I, I don't necessarily have conversations with white folk about fixing racism. It's, I don't have the energy. I have conversations with black people to empower them, right? That, that's, where I, that's where I sit. And that's why I'm, I see myself as quite radical 
in that. But that's not to say I shut down conversations. Bring it to me, let's have it. But I'm not coming to you with it. It's all about energy. Energy and resource are, are limited, right? Yeah. Um, you asked me about self-care and it's knowing when to say no to stuff. And there's certain things which I decide as an activist are really, really important for me. Um, and that's where I have to put all that energy. What's your advice to younger activists? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's about connect connect with other people, you are, you are not doing this on your own and build coalition amongst different groups of you, find like-minded people and build up that strength. Activism goes beyond a single tweet and a lovely Instagram post. What are you building behind that, right? Um, so you can write Black Lives Matter or prep for everybody today, but are you next week gonna write a letter to your MP? Are you going to make sure that four of your friends have read this article, you know, and then discussed it with them? Go that extra mile. Just do that extra bit that you need to do. Individuals make up a community, but individuals are not a community. And I think that there's way too much of this is me, aren't I amazing, rather than this is us. If the gay community is broken, how do we come together to fix it? You know, I mean, communities come together in moments of crisis and we probably don't feel like we're in crisis. Mm. You know, and especially if we look at, say, the headline gays, they say, you know, white cis gays, right, that kind of wield a lot of power and a lot of noise, they're sorted. You've got gay marriage, you know, you're on telly, um, you, you know, everybody wants to be your best friend. So it's all good, right? So why do you need to fight for anything else? Um, so I'm not sure. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we will ever be connected in the ways that we once were. We are fragmented. I mean, that's just the way it is. There's a new generation of younger queers who do not even sit underneath the gay umbrella anymore. So, for example, I describe myself as a gay. I don't, I'm, I'm a gay man, but I sit within the queer community. So I belong to a community of black gay men, and that's a very strong community. But the wider gay community is too diverse now. It's huge, it's fragmented. We come together when, for example, the Pulse shootings. We come together in moments of grief. Um, but again, when it came to advocating and fighting for PrEP, for sexual health, the pushback we got from some gays to just get on board was crazy. We, we live in a really, really strange time where activism, shouty activism, isn't necessarily welcome because it's like, well, what are you shouting for? We, we, we got marriage. I can get surrogates. That's what the issue is. The global fight for our rights as queer people is far from over. That's not to say that there aren't folk, I mean, you both know this, that there aren't folk out there doing the work and caring and being activists and writing letters and they're from the UK and they're from the Western countries, that is happening. I suppose it's just that thing of, oh, well, you know, we still see the hedonistic lifestyle. We still see the, oh, I don't care. But ultimately, I, as, a, as, a, as an activist that believes in my community and loves my community, as problematic as it is, I've also got to go, that's fine too. Because I, there's not every single straight person, there's not every single woman that is out there fighting to end sexism, you know? So some people just need to keep the wheels turning. They're on the bus, they're journeying, and some of us are driving it. And some of us are just sitting on the back having fun and that's okay that's fine too because mm. if i had too many activists then i'd have to fight them all when it would just be a drama and oh no it, and i'd be like it doesn't go that way <laughs> listen this is me now i want to sit in the priority seat on the bus that's where i'm sitting in the priority seat nice and comfy gin and tonic and we're good to go what a brilliant 
brilliant guy and he's made such a, an amazing contribution to the growing availability of prep in the uk um, so it was really great to hear that from him so thank you Mark. yeah it really was and obviously if you want to get more information head to prepster and you can find out information on twitter instagram and online but thank you to mark and until next time we shall see you at the bar bye the 150 Marchers was written by Fraser Flintham and J.D. Stewart and edited by Fraser Flintham. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at 150Marchers and on Instagram at 150Marchers. You can find our At The Bar episodes and our journey to find the 150 Marchers on Highbury Fields on your preferred podcast listening device now.